Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Bonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Hugo de Stoop started his career with the industrial group Musta International before joining Euronav in 2004. Euronav is one of the biggest crude oil tanker companies in the world and Hugo has been the CEO since 2019. In this episode, Hugo explains how luck and a random flight landed him the perfect job after his education, why he never thought he would end up in the oil and the shipping industry, how he wants to help change the shipping industry to become more sustainable, the future of the global energy mix and why we need oil for a long time, and his best advice for people who want to have an impactful career. Let's start the show. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Okay, welcome back, Hugo. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me for a conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me. Very excited to be here. Likewise. Let's go all the way back. Can you talk a bit about your upbringing and why you decided to pursue chemical engineering? Oof, that's uh, that's a long time ago. You know, I finished my studies in '98, but. Uh, yeah, basically in uh, in Belgium there was uh, maybe a couple of streams, and and one was uh, legal to become a lawyer or or at least to uh, to study the law. Um, I would say another one was uh, more on the economics, uh, business uh, like, and and the third one was uh, engineering. And in Belgium, all the engineers have a, a sort of a, a common background that they do for three years, and then only after three years um, they decide what they want to uh, focus on. And I focus on uh, uh, chemistry, not because I was uh, particularly interested in chemistry. I, I think I was interested in pretty much everything. Um, but I selected chemistry because very few people were selecting chemistry at that time. And so I thought we're gonna be uh, less than 10 students and uh, the quality uh, of uh, the teaching will be uh, so much higher because it will be uh, a small group of people where we can interact. And so. Uh, that drove my decision. I, I know it can sound a little bit strange, but uh, I think my parents always explained that studies uh, don't help much uh, on the subject that you studied. They are better to form or shape your brain. And so whatever you study is not particularly important. What is important is the way you learn how to work, how to analyze things, uh, how you would uh, uh, take a problem and then find solutions. And I think from that point of view, the, the, the quality uh, of the teachers and 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 the quality of uh, the learning curve is uh, far more important. That's very interesting. Obviously, it's become common knowledge today, but I remember at least for a couple of years ago, you had that famous saying from Elon Musk to think from first principles, and he applied that from math and physics. So I guess you can get the same kind of mental models from chem- from chemistry as well. Yeah, and, and quite frankly, when you study engineers in the first three years, as I said, is, is coming from everyone. You get a lot of math, a lot of physics. Uh, and so from that background, you can uh, obviously shape your brain in, in a way that uh, helps you throughout your career. But obviously, being a very curious student and probably want to go abroad, travel abroad, how did you end up in your first sort of job, which I think was for an industrial company traveling from Latin America, from Europe, etc.? How did that journey mm-hmm. look like? 
Well, I, uh, like many students, um, we, we had uh, companies presenting uh, their credentials on campus and trying to attract uh, a number of students. And uh, I, uh, I applied to uh, a couple of them, and one of them was Ensign uh, Young. And they offered me a contract, and it was uh, very, very decent in terms of uh, what you will uh, earn and what you will do. And, and many people said, well, it's, it's a very good experience because you will see a lot of different businesses. And so uh, I, I was about to sign my contract when uh, I bumped into uh, someone that I knew from the past. Uh, it was a friend of uh, my parents, but a very distant friend. I met him only once, uh, in fact. And I bumped into him completely by accident in an airport. Um, and then we started chatting. We were waiting for, for the same plane. Uh, and uh, we pursued a conversation in the plane. Um, and, and at the end, when we landed, he said, well, why don't you come and work for me? I said, uh, yeah, but what am I going to do? Uh, and he said, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? I said, well, it depends. <laughs> um, because I have this contract and I'm, I'm going to sign. And they look at me and say, no, 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 don't go mainstream. I mean, you need to do something that is really valuable. Uh, and uh, I can tell you that uh, I run an industrial group. It's fairly international. Um, we have expanded uh, massively. and we, we want to continue the expansion through uh, merger and acquisitions. And we have set up a team uh, that will go and analyze the, the synergies that we can create between the different uh, companies in the group. Um, and that will give you a, a real exposure to uh, the industrial life. And, and as an engineer, obviously, I was interested in that. So um, the next uh, thing that he said is that, well, you're going to be based in the U.S. And, and I'd been traveling to the U.S. and I was a bit fascinated by the U.S. Um, so that was better than being being uh, based in Belgium. So um said, okay, that's already exciting. Where about it? So, well, you have the choice because we have two main offices in the States. One is in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, uh, which is a place that I don't, I, I knew Connecticut, but I had never heard of Hartford, which is in fact the capital of, of Connecticut. Uh, uh, and it's either there or Miami, Florida. And I said, well, is that really a choice? I mean, did, you know, would you expect anyone to say Hartford, Connecticut? And uh, and I said joking. Well, anyway, it's better that you're based in uh, in Miami because uh, the most recent acquisitions and and probably the future acquisitions will do will be in Latin America, and then it's the best the best hub to travel to Latin America is Miami because you have direct flights to pretty much all the place in, uh, in Latin America. So I didn't know Miami at all. I I obviously had the same image than probably uh, many people have of Miami, which is either a, a holiday resort. Uh, or a, a place where you retire when you're very old uh, American and, and, and you made it uh, okay in your life, or at least Florida, that reputation. I said, you know, well, I'll, I'll, I'll try Miami. And, uh, and fortunately, before I moved there, uh, I found a friend who was going to study there. He was a little bit younger than me. Um, so he was going to attend the uh, architecture school uh, in Miami, which has a very good reputation. And so from day one, I could share an apartment with him. Um, and uh, leave the student lab, but still have the good part of the student lab, which I suppose are, are the parties and all the rest. And then um, uh, it, it was indeed uh, very interesting because I was struggling all the time. Uh, I didn't spend that much time in Miami, at least the first two years, and uh, and, and traveled to many uh, Latin American countries, which, which is uh, extremely uh, interesting because uh, I think we have a tendency to put all of them in the same pocket, but they all have their cultural differences. Uh, and that's definitely something that I learned that, uh, you know, uh, stop uh, having prejudice. Just go uh, there, experiment uh, and extract uh, whatever value you can extract for, for yourself, but also for the people uh, locally. So um, that, was, uh, that was great. But, but reflecting on that story, how do you sort of view uh, the concept of serendipity, luck and timing in planning a career and, and getting, you know, the career opportunities you want to have? Hmm. I'm ne I've, I've never been good at career planning, uh, to be honest with you. I, I think that um, the studies that I did had a fairly good group. So uh, when I did engineering, when I chose to do a chemical, and as I said, it could have been anything else. I knew that I would land a decent job with a decent salary. I mean, that was, uh, it was, it was very tough studies. I mean, uh, people look at you and say, oh, wow, he's an engineer, he must be uh, intelligent. Well, I'm not sure because some of my course students were maybe not that intelligent, but anyway, <laughs> I managed to get out of, uh, of the system with a diploma and, and, and land a job indeed. 
Um, but I never, never really um, planned a career. It was more opportunistic. Um, and I have a great deal of trust in life. Um, but what is very important is that I, I think a lot of people have opportunities. Um, you need to identify the good ones from the bad ones. And uh, it's a mix of uh, good feeling, I guess, but also really trying to, you know, take a step back and think, okay, is that something where I'm going to be happy? And what makes me happy? Well, what makes me happy is hopefully what makes a lot of people happy. And it's to continue to learn. And I think that you continue to learn until you die, basically. Uh, if it's to do something that is uh, the same over and over and over again, uh, I think that that will not be particularly uh, uh, exciting. Um, and, and the problem with not being excited is that um, you will get bored. Uh, and quite frankly, it will affect the way you work and so the quality of your work would be affected by what I dare to call happiness at work um, after all we spend much of our life uh, at work than uh, whatever we do uh, privately uh, is for most of us and so whatever you do in the office better make, make you happy so um, from time to time you will take the wrong decisions and I certainly did that uh, at some point in my career I mean prior to uh, embarking uh, in an MBA I certainly spent the uh, I think it was five or six months with the wrong people. Um, and I, I almost immediately, because six months is a pretty short period of time, I almost immediately uh, resigned from that group because it didn't make me happy. It made me uh, very uncomfortable. It wasn't the, I wasn't sharing a lot of values with the people I was working for. And, and, and I think that you also have to, uh, to have the courage to, uh, to admit that from time to time you will do mistakes, uh, but you need to react on them. Makes sense. Uh, looking back on the decision to embark in the shipping industry and at Euronav, how was that decision? How did that process come by surprise? Because I think you you have been quoted that it took you by surprise that you entered the shipping industry at first, at least. You know, it's it's one of the uh, to a certain extent the funniest story of my life because uh, I didn't plan it at all. Uh, in fact, I was uh, uh, full of prejudice, and as I said. Uh, that people should have less prejudice but for me the shipping industry in particular the tanker shipping industry was the image that i had was uh, another ship uh, on a pristine beach spilling oil uh, this is horrible this is miserable and and believe it or not I, i've always had a, a very ecological uh, side in me so i forced my parents to sort the garbage even though it was not uh, mandatory in belgium uh, when i was uh, maybe 13 or 14 years old um, I, uh, I got a membership in Greenpeace when I was 16. Uh, I did some campaigns in the North Sea with them. Um, I also have a, a membership WWF. Um, and I was always very, very close and very concerned about the planet. So um, when, uh, when I, I finished my MBA, uh, what I wanted to do with the experience that I had and then the, this new diploma was to work for a private equity, private equity fund um, that was very focused on renewable energy. So, you know, at that time it was sort of emerging, but I, I, I saw that as a, as a fantastic opportunity to, uh, to change things in this planet. Um, and, um, and I landed a, a job again, but uh, what got in between was my wife. My, my wife, she's very ecological as well, but my wife told me, well, you know, uh, I was a little bit worried about your, your career because after my MBA, I took two months of holidays and I really didn't do uh, anything about it. I really wanted to, uh, to enjoy my holidays. Uh, and so she thought I was a bit slow in landing a job. I mean, we were already in October, so it was four months after finishing the MBA. And, and she started distributing my CV left, right and center to a network which was very focused on healthcare and charity. So I said, mm, I'm not sure that I want to work in healthcare or, or I'm ready to do a philanthropic work uh, already. But anyway, uh, she did that uh, uh, with uh, obviously a, a good meaning. <clears throat> and so um, uh, there was a, an acquaintance of her who said, well, I know a guy who know a guy and they need to reinforce the finance team. And uh, they're based in London. I wanted to go back to London. Um, and so uh, I've landed you an interview. So, oh, well, that's great. Thank you so much. What is it that they are doing? Well, they transport crude oil on board ships. Sorry? Uh, great. Then I returned home and I said to my wife, this is complete bullshit. I mean, I'm not going to waste my time going to do an interview uh, 
obviously I will I will hate that job from the first day. This goes against all my values, everything that I built in my life, blah, blah, blah. I started. And then she said very, uh, a little bit embarrassed. I said, well, you know, the guy did me a favor in like an interview. I mean, out of uh, politeness, if anything, uh, just go and uh, say thank you very much. Uh, no, thank you. So that's what I did. Went to London and I arrived in an office where um, literally the first thing that the guy told me is, I'm sorry, but we no longer have the position. I was like, yes, I don't even need to find an excuse. But, we, that, and that was a Tankers International pool, uh, but we have a number of members in our pool and one of them is Euronav. Um, it, at the moment, it's a small subsidiary of a bigger uh, holding, uh, shipping, uh, logistic company, but they want to spin it off and, and they want to do an, uh, an IPO, so they want to become independent and, uh, uh, and, and basically they are next door and uh, I've uh, arranged for an interview uh, right, right now with them. Shit, I cannot escape from that one. So I, I, I changed floor, I went to, uh, to the other side. Uh, and, and I was sitting in front of, uh, at the time, was uh, the CEO, uh, Betty Rogers. And then uh, relatively soon after the beginning of the interview uh, came uh, Mark Savaris, uh, who was the owner uh, of, um, of that company. And um, it was not much of an interview. It was really uh, a session where they explained me what they wanted to do with the company and the reason why they wanted to um, make it independent. Uh, may, may, uh, listing it uh, on Euronext and, and then uh, use the share to consolidate the market. And then we had a fairly uh, open conversation where I said, well, you know, it's, it's good and well, I, I wish you good luck. But, but personally, uh, I'm a little bit more uh, on the renewable energy side and uh, you know, oil is, uh, I understand the importance of oil, but it's not really my thing. And, and then, you know, one thing leading to another, I, I expressed my concern about oil spills and the reputation of the industry and all the rest of it. And they were listening and they were, yeah, yeah, okay. And we finished the interview when uh, when Mark Savaris told me, uh, well, so if I understand you uh, well, you, you you want to fight the system from outside because you think uh, we're doing a dirty job uh, and that we're polluting everything. Uh, and, and you believe that by being a member of, uh, of Greenpeace, uh, you're going to change things. So, yeah, sort of. Well, let me tell you one thing. If you want to change something, then you better be part of the system and change it from within rather than from outside. Because uh, painting the hulls of ships and saying uh, we are dirty will not change anything ever. So I reflected on that and said, maybe, okay. Uh, anyway, uh, we came to the conclusion that it was worth the trial. And uh, certainly the IPO was a project, a project that will take maybe six or seven months. And after completion of the IPO, then uh, obviously I, I would be, uh, be free, I'm always free, but uh, I would be free to go and, and, uh, and do something else. And then I, I spoke to the private equity guys that um, wanted to hire me and they said, well, that's perfect timing because we're still raising the funds. And in six or seven months, if you can come back with um, the experience of having done or having led an IPO, then it's even better. So for me, it was like, again, an opportunity, but it was a win-win rather than win-lose. Um, so that's what I did. And 17 years later, I'm still at Euronet. That's incredible. That's an incredible story. Just if you, if you look at the, um, the shipping industry as a whole, you obviously have the tankers, you have the containers, you have the LNG and LPG. It seems like from the outside, it seems like there is something special drawn to the tanker industry that is almost like more dynamic, more fast paced, etc. Can you sort of tell people that are not that into shipping what separates the tanker market from the other markets in the shipping industry? Yeah, I, and, and that's a very important point because uh, a lot of people see shipping as shipping. So I have a lot of friends calling me today and say, wow, shipping is booming. And that's because they read an article about containers. And I said, no, our business is pretty difficult at the moment. We had a very good year last year. Last year, it was a disaster for everyone. No, not for us, but this year it is. So it's important to make the difference between the different shipping segments. And Every single shipping segment have their own dynamics in supply and demand. So number of ships versus uh, the number of cargoes that you need to transport. Now, if we look at the container vessels, it's an amalgamation of boxes. You know? uh, today, modern ships, they can carry 24,000 24, boxes. 
And so the logistic behind it, because it's one thing to put them on the ship and to disembark it, but the, 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 the entire supply chain, where the, uh, the, the container will be filled or where it will be emptied, uh, is part of uh, the service that uh, some of the, the biggest company wants to, uh, to provide. Um, so it is more sophisticated in a way that it requires, uh, you know, lot more than just the shipping element, i.e. The, the construction of the ship and the manning or the operation of the, the, the ship. Um, and, and from that point of view, it's a very interesting market, but it's a market that is relatively stable unless you have a big crisis like a COVID crisis. Uh, after all, the goods needs to be moved. More and more goods are moved uh, in, uh, in containers. Uh, and so the, 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 the name of the game is to follow the growth of the market. And from time to time, time the market doesn't grow as fast as the fleet. And from time to time, the, the, the market grows faster than the fleet. And so you have uh, ups and downs. Uh, and I think that this year is a little bit exceptional because there are many elements which have squeezed it. But so it, it is more stable than our market. Then you have the, the gas market, which is a market of long-term contracts because um, the fleet is not that big. Uh, and a gas is something that you, you can transport and store under very difficult conditions because it's a gas. So everything needs to be uh, pressurized. Everything, every, everything needs to be on a pipe. When you think about uh, the oil, well, you can store the oil in any container, in a truck, in a train, in a, uh, in a specific storage on land. And so it's, it's a lot easier. So that's, that's already a big difference is that the gas market needs to be planned. Uh, in advance, like a, a big train. If you think about where it is produced, where it's going to go, uh, you, you need to think about every single point and every single point is the responsibility falls on different people. But overall, it is also a more stable market because uh, of uh, the, 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 the product that you are transporting. If you go to dry bulk, so dry bulk is more like coal, uh, it's uh, iron ore or different uh, uh, metals ore. Uh, and then, of course, all the, uh, the grains or all the agriculture part. Uh, but that is probably on smaller ships. And this is a market that is probably the closest to a market, but nevertheless, it's relatively stable because you know that uh, uh, steel production is something that goes up and down. But overall, it has a trajectory. And then in terms of food, it's the same. I and mean, people have... Uh, uh, by definition, they need to eat every day. And so you have some uh, stability there. Of course, uh, the weather can uh, influence the production and these kind of things. But it has ups and downs. It's more cyclical uh, like our, but it doesn't go to the huge peak and huge trough uh, that we have. And then you come to our market and certainly the crude, because there's also the petroleum product after the refinery. But in terms of crude, uh, what makes it very, very volatile um, unpredictable, uh, certainly seasonal and seasonal because we tend to use more energy in the winter as the majority of the people lives in the northern hemisphere. Um, uh, it, it is influenced by so many geopolitical uh, and uh, geographical factors. So geopolitical are the decisions taken by politicians and you can see when there is a sanction uh, a regime that is being sanctioned, like at the moment, Iran and Venezuela, uh, or when there is a big dispute between the Americans and the Chinese, for instance, uh, or, um, or, you know, the eruption of a war or a civil war, the Middle East is not the most stable place. And, and nevertheless, it's where uh, most of the oil is being produced. So you can see that many elements that are completely beyond your control uh, are influencing your market. And then in terms of geographies, uh, it is the case that weather events will influence the uh, market tremendously because a hurricane, the hurricane season, means that all the ships need to deviate, they, they, they will have delays, uh, an earthquake can, uh, can have a, a severe impact, uh, a tsunami like the one that uh, hit Fukushima mean, means that Japan will, will then have to use much more oil, much more gas, uh, potentially, and well, at that time, much more coal. So... A lot of factors that influence our marketers are, are, are unpredictable, but they happen all the time, and you never know when they're going to happen. And, and because the market is relatively uh, big, but a tiny influence of one, two, three percent difference can make a big uh, impact on the rates, uh, means that it's very volatile. And then the last element is the market is 
very much exposed to the spot market. So it's not a long-term market. It's really one voyage after another. Um, uh, and that means that the, the, the earnings that you're going to have depends on every single time that you fix a ship. Fixing a ship means agreeing on a contract to lift a cargo and to transport this cargo from A to B. Every time you do that, it's a Dutch auction. So you have two or three ships that can do the service and the guy will choose the cheapest one. Of course, he will have some qualitative criteria, some safety criteria that's very important, but he will nevertheless choose the, the cheapest vessel. So the market uh, uh, is always uh, going down when there's an oversupply because there are too many ships bidding for cargo and always going up when there's undersupply because there are not enough ships and they want to make sure that they can transport their cargo. That's super interesting and, and a very good explanation. Um, if you look at the scale of your company, What's the easiest way to explain the scale of your company and also how big the ships are? I read somewhere, I don't know if it's correct, but it said that one of your biggest ships can hold the energy, the oil consumption of uh, Britain and France in one day. So if that's correct or nearly correct, it says something about the enormous scale of both the ships and your company. No, absolutely. So if we start with the with the fun element, which are uh, the ships that we operate, so we operate three types of ships, uh, the Suez Max, and they're called Suez Max because the, the, the biggest ship that can go through the Suez Canal uh, on a fully laden, i.e. with a full cargo, um, uh, and they can carry one million barrel, one million barrel of oil. Uh, the, 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 the other size that we have, uh, and that's we have many more of those is, are the VLCCs, the very large crude car, and, and they were invented really uh, at a time when, when the Middle East became uh, a very important hub uh, for exporting of, uh, of oil. And, and vast majority at that time of the vessels were going to the, the US. And so people were looking for economies of scale. So they said, we're going to double the size of a, of a Suez Max. Uh, and it makes sense because the journey is very long, so you can consume more, uh, less, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they can carry two million pounds at a time. And then there are uh, very few, but we we own all of them. Uh, very few ships that can carry three million pounds. Um, they are obviously even bigger than a VLCC. Um, they are mostly used for storage, in fact, not so much uh, for transportation. And and initially. We thought that uh, the fleet was going to grow and that it would become the standard, but it didn't because the market structure was not set to uh, carry or to trade 3 million barrels at a time and 2 million barrels is already a lot. And you need to think about uh, the customer who is asking you to do that. 2 million barrels in today's uh, world is $160 million worth of cargo, $160 million. Back in 2014, it was uh, uh, more than 200 million because the oil price was at more than $100 a barrel. So you can see that the, 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 the amount of money that you need to be a trader in those markets and therefore to need the services of a shipping company uh, is, is, is quite big. So <clears throat> when you look at the size, well, a, a, in length, uh, a Suez Max will be 220 meters. Uh, a VLCC will be uh, 280 meters, and then a ULCC, an ultra-large crude carrier, will be uh, probably 330 meters. So 330 meters for the golfers, that's uh, longer, or it's the size of a par 5. So <laughs> it's, it tells you a lot. And if you put it vertically, uh, it's just uh, smaller than the Eiffel Tower in Paris. So it's absolutely gigantic. Now, in terms of uh, height, uh, when you take the ship on the, on the dry and put it next to you, it's 60 meter high. Now, 60 meter high is the equivalent of 22 floor building, 22 floor building. So it's it's absolutely gigantic. Um, so it's it's very impressive to um, to realize that uh, human beings are capable of building those uh, those gigantic. Uh, tools and and those things are moving around the the world in the ocean. They they are made of steel. Uh, they are very very heavy and fortunately they float uh, thanks to uh, physical loads, of course. Um, and um, 
every time I visit a ship and every time I go uh, to the, the shipyard who is finishing the, the building of a ship and, you know, we have big ceremonies to name the ship. So there's a lot of tradition in the, in the industry. You are, you know, I've been in this industry 17 years and every single time I'm like, oh my God, this is for real. This is like, this is going to move, carry oil in a very safe way, but this is going to flow. This is, this is going to be there for 20 years or more. So uh, I'm, I'm, as an engineer, obviously, I, I completely admire uh, these, uh, these, these mammoth. Um, and and the, the, the last element that people need to understand is it, it's not because it's made of steel that it doesn't move. So there is quite, when you put that ship on, on the water, you can't see it. But obviously, if you look at the simulator, you will understand that because the water is exercising different kind of pressure on the hull, then it's the entire ship which is uh, bending in many different ways. But obviously, within a what we call a life fatigue, uh, which means that they, they, they will be very solid for 20 years, but it's also the reason why after 20 years we need to retire them because the steel has been fatigued enough uh, and, and uh, we don't want to take any risk that it breaks. Fascinating. Um, short question, but I guess it's a long answer. How do you calculate the optimal fleet size? You don't really calculate the, the optimal fleet size uh, because to a certain extent you want to grow as big as much uh, as you can. Uh, and that's for very, very simple reason. And, you know, our business is not that complicated for economies of scale. So uh, the more ships you have under one roof, uh, the more you can spread your expenses over those ships. And if those ships are very similar to one another, then obviously you will have economies of scale in buying parts that you need in your purchasing power of fuel will be greater. So you will get more discounts in the market, etc. So, I would say the, the limit of the size is more set by the regulators because they don't want anyone to dominate the market and to set the price than by ourselves. Uh, fortunately, and, and even though we are one of the largest, uh, we have still a lot of uh, way to go before we would hit those restrictions set by the regulators. Because you had a quote that when you're looking at growing the company, you look at it as, you know, not in absolute terms, but in relative terms. Maybe that's a good framework to use talking about growth. And you also have this great analogy to the airline industry, buying a new plane versus recycling or using an old plane. Can you just quickly go mm. through that that um, that mental model? Yeah, I, th I think that the, the relative size is, uh, is a reference to uh, the client that you can service because there is a lot of um, um, oil that is being moved on captive fleet. So in the past, the oil major, they are their own fleet and then whatever excess uh, uh, cargo they wanted to transport, they were uh, asking the independent owners uh, like us. Today, it's more uh, the Saudis who are producing a lot of oil. They have their captive fleet. And then the Chinese have also a fairly large fleet. Uh, and so we, the independent, are, are trying to service and cater for uh, the other guys. So that's what I mean by relative to absolute. So in a market of 820 or 830 VLCCs that exist, we only have 5%. But if you reduce that to the number of cargoes that we can uh, really carry, because uh, we are not captive to anyone, then we are closer to, to maybe 12%. Um, uh, and, and, then, and by the way, that can vary year on year because from time to time, some of those players will increase their fleet and from time to time, they will, uh, will decrease their fleet. So uh, it's something that we, we need to look at. Um, I, 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 uh, I think that um, this, is, this is what I meant by uh, relative uh, versus uh, absolute. Now, um, in terms of, um, well, the, the relative side, size sorry, uh, is also a question of what you can manage at a particular point uh, in time. So if tomorrow I want to double the capacity of Yerna, then I will have to change the business model because I cannot hire enough people immediately to cater for that, despite the fact that the vessels are going to be delivered, are going to be ours almost immediately. And, and there you fall into your second question, which is, um, do we prefer to buy uh, existing vessels, so the, the, the second-hand market uh, in a way, or do you prefer to, uh, to order? Uh, but the problem with ordering is that you are adding to the supply. And so you are, in a way, shooting yourself in the foot because 
as I said, I mean, the, the, the market is made is balanced between supply and demand. And so if, if you put more supply, then obviously the rest of the, the existing ship will go down. But if I relay one to the other, then if you order, it's very easy to foresee, because it takes two years to, to build, foreseeing the necessary people that are going to be on board the vessel. If you buy secondhand in the market, then the vessels are being delivered to you immediately. And there, you need to uh, to go for outsourcing uh, some of the services that, uh, that you need, uh, which is not always optimal. I mean, it's a very good thing that it exists in our industry, but it's not always optimal because we believe uh, that the biggest or the greatest assets that we have in the company are the people. And so if you start outsourcing, you are a little bit out of touch uh, with uh, some of those people. Um, and it's, uh, it's a very different way of working uh, with people on board that's, that are not employees of, uh, of Euronav, uh, which means that the values that they share, the way they work uh, may be a little bit different. And, and because they are... Uh, more at a distance from the business, uh, it's not uh, for sure that uh, our interest will always be uh, aligned. So we prefer to buy second hands, but we are limited by uh, the business model that uh, that we apply. And then, uh, of course, going uh, going to or looking at the, the future, the type of ships that we want to operate in the future are not type of ships that we have today because we will change the fuel that we use and we will gradually try to have fuels that are zero emissions uh, which means that the engine will be will have to be modified and if it's not possible to modify it because very often it's not possible you will have to build something new that has been designed to uh, work with that uh, particular type of fuel I want to come back to that because I know you were in in Glasgow recently. But just uh, a quick question in the shipping uh, on the shipping side first. Uh, I think it's a normal quote that uh, optionality is the best way to make money in shipping. Can you clarify by what you mean by optionality and how do you increase or get the most amount of optionality available? Mm. if you if if we go back to what I said earlier, and I said that this is a market that is uh, very volatile but also unpredictable, and let's let us assume uh, for a moment because you will make the explanation simpler that we have absolutely no clue when there is going to be a good freight uh, environment and when there is not going to be a good freight and freight are the race that uh, that we 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 receive for the service that we provide then optionality is the best answer. Because if you have an option to get more ships or to prolong certain contracts, and it's your option, then obviously you're going to do that only when the rate environment dictates you to do that. So if you don't have optionality, then you are completely exposed to the market and you're a little bit, uh, I would say, a passive actor of, uh, of the environment. If you have optionality and you can uh, suddenly increase your exposure to certain markets uh, or increase uh, the, the size of the fleet because you have uh, maybe rented some ships on short term, but you have an option to purchase them, uh, it's going to be an advantage. Knowing that the value of the ships vary very much with the rate environment, uh, it's also uh, very interesting. So if I, if I give you an example, when you order two ships, you can probably have an option to order a third one. Sorry, uh, and you have probably one year to exercise that option. In one year, many things can change. And so if the value of your contract has gone up, you continue to pay the same price to the yard, but maybe the value of the ship that you're building has gone up by 10 or 15%. And at that point in time, it's very interesting to exercise your option. If conversely, uh, it went down, because maybe too many ships uh, are being built or, or yards are offering more opportunities to build ships, then of course you don't exercise the option, but you can still sign a contract, but at a lower rate. So option is is uh, is uh, very very important uh, in, in our market. Makes sense. Let's go back to to the climate issue you just raised. If we go a bit more broad in, in at the start, if you look at the sort of take the energy market and the energy consumption and if we if we base it on the fact that the energy demand is going to slowly compound in the future as well because you want a prosperous world right what do you think is sort of the 
biggest misunderstanding of the energy market in general? And then we can dive into, of course, your specific company and industry. So, so by now you understand that I'm a super ecological guy. So uh, I drive an electrical car. My uh, house is completely autonomous. It's passive. Uh, it's the second house that I built, which is completely passive. Uh, and and I'm, I'm uh, not a big consumer. In fact, I believe that we consume way too much uh, into this world and I hate to waste uh, anything. Um, if you want to find a solution for this planet, uh, you need to transit to a completely different uh, type of uh, model and completely different type of uh, society. Nevertheless, we need to agree that society at large has made significant progress to get people out of poverty and to provide relatively good healthcare system. Everything is relative. You may have a better healthcare system in, in Switzerland than in Ethiopia, but if you look at where they started, everything is going in the right direction. That requires a lot of energy. At the moment, the energy is provided by the fossils. And it was something that we discovered, well, a long time ago when it comes to, to coal, uh, 19th century when it comes to oil. And obviously, uh, we've seen different revolutions in the energy world um, that, that, that meant that we could develop the world in the way we've seen this, uh, this fantastic development for human beings. Now we have reached a point where we realize that there is a huge problem uh, in doing that. It's, it's the release of greenhouse gas. It's not only CO2, it's greenhouse gas, and there are, there are probably six major greenhouse gases. Uh, CO2 being the biggest, but not the, the, the most harmful. Um, the, the, the way we, we see things, and certainly the way I see things uh, as a human being, is that we need to accelerate whatever technology uh, can help us to uh, provide the energy that is required uh, in, in a green way. But I, I don't believe that you can tell people overnight, you know what, we're going to switch off the lights, we're going to stop all the cars, and then in 10 years, 15, 20 years, we're going to go back to the world that we are living in because there will be sufficient uh, renewable energies available because we would have built uh, all of that. So that's not really a model uh, that, uh, that, that, that can be accepted by society. So you need a transition. And the transition means that you are using the energy today and probably the capital that this energy is providing uh, you to invest and develop the infrastructure of tomorrow. And that transition, even if you are super ambitious, will take 30 or 40 years. And in 40 years, we will probably continue to consume oil, but the way we consume oil is going to be different and probably we're going to be able to capture the CO2, et cetera, et cetera. But the vast majority will be provided by electrons instead of molecules. So by uh, renewable energy, uh, providing electricity rather than uh, just uh, physical molecules of burning, uh, basically, a fossil fuel. So um, as far as Euronow is concerned, people will tell me, well, then, then you are uh, embarked in a business that is dying. You know, first of all, everything needs to die one day, but I don't believe the business itself will die. I believe that the business will evolve. Uh, but what is very, very important is not to abandon the business too quickly. So I see a lot of investors who say, well, I cannot invest in fossil fuel anymore. I said, this is a mistake. What you need to do is to invest in the companies that clearly demonstrate that they are helping the transition, that are accelerating the transition, that are serious about the transition. They are not hypocrites trying to kick the can down the road, trying to say, yeah, but we, we must wait for this or we must wait for that. No, they are concretely doing and taking actions that are helping the transition. Now, I think that if people in general and investors in particular understand that they need to back the champions of the transition, even though at the moment they are only involved in a fossil fuel industry, that is probably the best way to shorten the transition, to make it less chaotic and to make it cheaper. Today, we are in the first energy crisis uh, that is, in my opinion, set by the energy transition. There's been underinvestment in so many fields that are providing the energy today 
that obviously the markets are going up. When you don't have enough supply and you have a growing demand, then obviously prices are going to go through the roof. Look at what is happening on the gas price. That's a very good example. Look at what's happening on the oil price. I mean, we are now at 85. A year ago, we were less than half of where we are today. So if, if that's what we want to do, that's perfect. But believe me, the transition will be longer, transition will be more chaotic, and the transition will cost a lot of money. And we need all that money to be applied to the transition and to the, the new methods of producing energy that we Looking at the euro now, I think you have said that you're bullish on hydrogen and ammonia, but it takes time. Can you just quickly explain why you're bullish on those types of solutions uh, compared to maybe LNG? I think it's maybe hard to be very uh, short in the answer because it's complicated because maybe mm. on, on one side on the equation, it, it seems good in a green world, but then you sort of forget maybe the infrastructure piece as well. But maybe just kind mm. of to give people a... A quick understanding in your thinking because obviously there's no easy answer that everyone agrees on today but it's kind of like you need to develop the technology as well but uh, I mean, it's very true it's it's difficult to make a simple answer but first of all um i think that you have two choices in your life you have to cater for your own business and your own business only and say i'm responsible for that bit and therefore i don't care about the rest or you can be a little bit more realistic as a human being and you can look at what we call uh, the well, well, which is the, where you find the fossil fuel or where you uh, create the, the molecules of hydrogen to the wake. The wake is what the ship is making when it navigates uh, in the seas. And if you look at a complete life cycle of that, you will uh, see that the, the CO2 reductions with uh, gas uh, can be as high as 25, potentially 30%. But unfortunately, that supply chain of gas has a lot of leaks. And because the methane is very, very bad for the environment, 80 times, 80, 80, 80 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2, every time you leak a bit, well, you have leaked 80 times more than the CO2. So from that perspective, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's the reason why we're not against LNG, certainly not, but we are just saying watch out for not creating a problem by trying to solve another problem. Uh, ultimately, the reason why people don't embark on hydrogen or ammonia, and by the way, it's not going to be hydrogen, it's going to be ammonia and ammonia simply because it's a carrier or hydrogen, so it remains hydrogen, but it's just being carried in another molecule. Um, the reason why people look at it is because it's it's a true zero emission fuel, as long as it is produced with renewable uh, energy, and the renewable energy needs to needs to expand, and we need to invest a lot more so that we can produce the green hydrogen, which in turn uh, will produce the green uh, ammonia. Uh, we have signed joint development program with a number of people so that we can accelerate the development of the ammonia engine. And we believe that the ammonia engine can be ready in 2025. Um, the moment it exists and the moment it's safe, because ammonia is a toxic product, so you need to take a lot of precautions uh, in order to handle it properly. But the moment it's ready, uh, I think that people uh, should only buy those ships but that's four, five years down the road. And in the meantime, if you have to order a ship, then it's probably uh, better to either order a conventional ship that can be retrofitted, that can be changed later on, or indeed to order an LNG ship because today the CO2 will be reduced. And if you source your methane uh, in places where people care about the leaks, then uh, it's probably better than the conventional ship. Makes sense. Uh, we received several Twitter questions, so I just want to quickly mention them so you can answer them before we have to wrap up. Uh, one was about the consolidation in the industry and maybe especially in the tanker industry. I know you have opinions on that, so maybe just unpack that a bit, the consolidation piece of the industry. Well, it, it relates to what I said earlier. I think that uh, bigger is better, uh, but we also have a market that is very fragmented. So consolidation uh, serves in my opinion, two purposes. The, the, the companies that we create and that are bigger and bigger, 
can obviously, they have more capacity to invest in whatever they want. In the case of Euronav, I suppose that it's going to be mostly in newer vessels, less polluting vessels, less emitting vessels, etc. cetera. Uh, but that, uh, that would be the responsibility of every company. Um, the, the other aspect is when you are in a market uh, that is behaving like a commodity and you have very few ships, and remember, uh, more than 25% of uh, the owners of VLCC, they have between one and three VLCCs, one and three vessels. Um, they, they cannot have the same type of information and system that we have because they're not going to spend the money. And, and quite frankly, whenever they fix their ship, a VLCC will do five voyages per year. That means they have three ships. They will be 15 times in the market. We are every day in the market, absolutely every day. So we talk to everybody. We know, we gather information, we put it in the system. Then we are able to see whether we should, uh, well, well, how we behave, how we uh, uh, deploy our fleet uh, across the world. So for the smaller players, that doesn't work. That's why it's very important that smaller players consolidate into bigger players, uh, especially also because of the transition. Uh, but from a market perspective, it's going to be a, a lot more stable, so less volatile, as I explained earlier. We had several questions regarding specific regulations, but maybe we can just put them together and get your views on deregulation or the EU's taxonomy and maybe just get the pieces that you are most interested about and you see will impact your business most going forward. Well, first of all, uh, remember that shipping has always tried to hide away from regulations. Um, that's because it's an international business. And most of the ships are registered, not the one on Euronav. Most of the ships are registered in, in tax havens, uh, in, in, in place where there's very little regulations. And uh, uh, that's, that's the way the, the, the shipping industry is working. We have decided to be a little bit different. We have decided to be incorporated in Belgium to fly European flags, which have a lot of uh, rules that we need to apply. And for us, it's a label of quality. So we are only too happy to apply those rules because even if we weren't uh, here, we, we would do that. Uh, so from that point of view, it's, um, it's very important to understand um, that the, the way the world will tackle decarbonization is going to be by regulating it more. And it could be carbon tax, but it could be also other type of uh, regulation. The, the EU is coming up with uh, three sets of uh, regulations, uh, carbon levy based, uh, based on the market, uh, a fuel specific, so uh, fuel that we'll have to use in the future, uh, the, the amount of uh, CO2 that they will emit will have to gradually go down, and then indeed the taxonomy. Um, I'm, I'm personally in favor of all those rules as long as they don't put Euronav at a disadvantage to the competition uh, who is not uh, in Europe. And, and at the moment, that's not the case. So that's fine. I think that the one that I don't like that much is the taxonomy because the taxonomy is very much telling the banks and the investors, you shouldn't invest in this because uh, it's not in line with the decarbonization. And so I, I come back to my earlier point. If you do not invest in the champions, then you will make the transition much more difficult, much more chaotic, much more expensive. So I would hate to see uh, capital going away and therefore a cost of capital going up uh, for Euronav when, when we are one of the good guys that are really trying uh, to help the journey and are demonstrating concretely how we're going to do that. Seems like a very valid point. Uh, just the last uh, theme that I wanted to briefly discuss is your passion for uh, social entrepreneurs and the foundation you have. Can you quickly explain the reason why you got involved in that and also the projects you have helped fund it and, and the, uh, the impact of that? Yeah. Well, for, first of all, I, I think that um, when, when you are spoiled and, and I'm spoiled by life, be honest, I mean, I, I was uh, I was uh, very lucky. I mean, first of all, my, my fantastic parents—they they were not the wealthiest people on the planet, but they gave me much more than uh, money. Of course, uh, I had a very good education, and that's because uh, in Belgium you have access. Everybody has access to very good education, very good healthcare system. Um, at some point, uh, and I did that early on in my my life. You need to give back. You absolutely need to give back. You, you need to realize that. Your position is a privileged one, and there are many, many people suffering from not being able 
to, to enjoy what you enjoy. So for me, it's very natural. That's the way I was educated. Uh, and I think that I will continue, maybe, uh, probably uh, increase my involvement as, uh, as, uh, as I get uh, older. Um, specifically, the foundation uh, in which uh, I'm active at the moment is, uh, is a great one because it's a family one. So it serves a dual purpose. Uh, we obviously do something good for society. I will come back to that in a minute. Uh, but on top of that, it's a very nice way to gather uh, many people from the same family who have the same values and who are able to do things together uh, for the common good. And, and obviously, together we are stronger. So uh, being able to work with, uh, with cousins and brothers and sisters and niece and, and all the rest of it, across three generations, because we have our parents, it's ourselves and, and some of us have already kids that are involved in the foundation. Uh, it's a, it, it, it's a, a very magnetic uh, element for, for the family. Um, and then what we do is uh, incredible because the rule is we're not there to give money or we're not there to give money only. We do give money, but uh, we cannot give money if one of us is not involved. So we need to act as ambassador. We need to have a sponsor of the projects. We need to get involved. We are uh, in, in some charities. We are part of the, of the board. In, in some other charities, we really get our hand dirty and, and, and go and do things like renovating houses, like distributing foods, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, the area that I have uh, selected for uh, my involvement in the foundation is um, the digitalization of education. And uh, we saw that there was a, a very nice uh, new business model for, uh, well, high school or university, which is based on peer-to-peer -peer education to learn coding. And I do believe that coding is probably one of the, 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 the most important things that uh, young people can, can learn. Uh, so we give access for free. And the reason why it's for free is because it doesn't take a lot of money to educate. And we have pools of 150 people uh, at a time. You need one teacher, and then you need the software to uh, sort of organize the uh, auto-education of the students. So they have little projects here and there. They, they are at different levels. So there are 21 levels in total. And the guys who are in the higher levels, they help the guys or they, 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 they uh, allocate portion of what they need to do to the lower guys because it's simpler. So it's uh, auto-stimulating. Uh, it's fantastic because you need to work in groups. It's fantastic because you need to recognize the difference of uh, uh, the people who are at the lower levels and the people who are at the higher levels. But the guys at the higher levels, they absolutely need the guys at the lower levels because otherwise they don't have the time to complete the task. So it's completely, uh, um, it's, it's a universe which is uh, completely self-sufficient, which is very cheap to operate, which can be done uh, remotely. Uh, basically, you need to provide a computer to the guys, but today, in today's world, computers are very cheap. Uh, and on top of that, we, we, we get help. Uh, and, and then the model can be developed further. It can expand further. And we are looking to that. We are part of a, a worldwide network. Uh, doing that. And, and so we have uh, very good hopes that, that it can change the way we educate people. Maybe the model can be expanded onto something else than coding. But basically, I believe that coding is uh, fundamental uh, for many people. And so when I look at the, the student body, we have uh, about 25% who don't have uh, a high school degree, 25%. So those people would probably either not find a job, not be able to find a job, or simply uh, get a job that is probably not uh, in tune with their intellectual uh, capacity. Because the, 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 the demonstration is that if you uh, involve them, and of course there's a selection program, but the selection program has nothing to do with what you've done in the past. It's, not a, it's just a test that a computer does in order to see if you are tuned in this kind of uh, coding. Uh, and you don't need to be a coder to enter the school. Huh? Absolutely not. Most of the people have never called one line. Uh, and nevertheless, they, they get out with the diploma, uh, despite the fact that the, the starting of their life was not, uh, was not particularly great. But there are so many reasons for that. 
Super fascinating. It was a, it was a great ending as well, Hugo. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much for inviting me and uh, and good luck with the with the rest. I think you do a, a great program and uh, I wish you to have uh, many more guests. Thank you so much. Hi everyone, Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you liked this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris Wunheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care.